Morning, everybody. It's always great to be with you. I feel like, especially with uh, events this week, I need to personally thank you for spending your hard-earned gas money driving to church. I told Jill we're going to have to start shopping at the dollar store to compensate, and then I thought, does the dollar store even exist anymore? You know, it's like, what can you get for a dollar? We get through a global pandemic, and then all of a sudden it's just like, no, countries at war, uh, economic hardships. It's like, can we just catch a break? Can the world just catch a break? And the question has been rightly asked. Where is God in the midst of all this affliction? Super fair question. What if affliction played an important role in your personal journey of faith? What if? In other words, what if there was a purpose, a higher purpose to heartache and pain? That's an interesting question. Human nature is such that we want to avoid pain at all costs. But what if there's a divine purpose to it? What if there were things that happened to you and around you that were meant to shape and form you in a way that you would otherwise not be shaped and formed without the affliction? We've been looking at the life of this man, Abraham, over the last few weeks and what we've been reminded of is the fact that faith is a journey. Simply put, faith is trust. And we experience this in human relationships, all human relationships. We're not quick just to give our trust away. We give it away in small parts. Trying to figure out if that person is actually trustworthy, but we just don't dump all of our trust on someone immediately. Faith is a journey. Trust is a journey. Wherein we move from immaturity to maturity. But it's all about relying on God and believing in who he says he is. Have you guys ever experienced uh, one of those, maybe it was like a weekend retreat with your teammates or coworkers, and it's a trust-building time where they actually have trust building exercises, right? You know, they, eventually they, they lead the team through something like a, what's called a trust fall. Have any of you ever participated in something like that, right? Where the person organizing it stands up there and one by one, they ask each individual person just to stand and, and their coworkers or teammates surround them behind them. And then they just say, just fall back, just fall back and trust that your team members will catch you. I want no part of that, no part of that. I don't trust you that much. You might misjudge my weight or my height and I leave in an ambulance. I'm not doing that. I want no part of a trust fall. I don't trust you that much. Trust misplaced can be devastating. But when trust is placed rightly in what is trustworthy, the relationship actually flourishes, but you do have to take that initial step and begin. Some of you might be familiar with a man named Charles Blondin. 1858, he was 35 years old. He was the first person ever to walk a tightrope across Niagara. And this dude was like extreme sports. He was Red Bull before Red Bull, you know, no net, no safety harness. And more than anything though, 
This guy was a showman. He'd step out onto the rope, and this was pure entertainment back in its day, nothing like it. It would still be something amazing to see in our own time. This man stepping out, and the showman in him would sort of, you know, But he was good. But man, did he put on a show. Crowd would go wild. Never seen anything like it. If he falls, it's certain death. He walks across. He does it again, walking back. But this time he's juggling. Crowd is stunned. The third time, this time with a chair. And he sets it in the middle of the wire and then sits on the chair. This guy's out of his mind. He's crazy, he's mental. Always ratcheting it up, finally. As you may be familiar with this story, he takes a wheelbarrow. and begins pushing it across. Gets to the other side, the crowd is almost speechless. Unbelievable. He shouts to the crowd, do you think I can go back? Do you think I can do it again? Yes, yes, yes. Do you think I can do it? Yes. Do you wanna see me do it? Yes. Do you believe I can? Yes, yes, yes. Who wants to get in? Silence. It was reported that only one person spoke up, and that was his mom. There will be times in your Christian life or your Christian walk where God will ask you, time for you to stop walking, time for you to get in and you're terrified. You're totally, you're absolutely terrified because this now becomes a trust issue. How are you gonna know that God is trustworthy unless you begin to place some trust in him? Uh, well, humans have this amazing capacity to accomplish things you could never think or dream of and to overcome challenges seemingly unimaginable with the help of God. You see this in the life of Abraham, and it is a journey, and you have to love the soberness with which the Bible is written because it portrays its heroes as they actually are, and as we've been saying each week, this is what makes them so relatable. Abraham oftentimes is two steps forward and then one big step backwards. And as he does that, he inf uh, inflicts pain upon himself. It's like a self-inflicted wound. But through these, these afflictions, he comes to recognize them for what they are and, and actually as opportunities for growth. In fact, I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, which sounds counterintuitive. He's kind of, kind of like, oh, I was afflicted. I went through this, and it just caused me to go astray. But that's not what he says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So this is interesting. Essentially what he's saying is because I didn't keep your word, God, because I didn't listen, 
I was afflicted. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. What are statutes? Those are written laws. So do you understand what he's saying? See, there was a time when affliction came into my life because I ignored your word. I didn't trust in it. But you know, those afflictions were good for me because I learned from them. And what I learned is to be obedient and just to get in the wheelbarrow and just to fall back. So one of the guys who mentored me, I was a very young pastor. And this guy had been a, a seasoned veteran, you know, just this, this older man of the faith. He'd been, pa- been pa- in pastoral ministry for many years. And if I was going through something or facing a challenge, I would go to him and I'd say, here, here's the situation. Can I get some advice? And I'll never forget, he would metaphorically respond like this. I'd explain the situation and he would say something like, well, let me just get my tunic out and put it on. And let me introduce you to this blood splatter. Because this blood splatter very similar to the situation that you're facing now. And here's what I did wrong. Let me show you this wound. It's the decision I made, the action I took, and I suffered for it. And I'll tell you, I'm not gonna do that again. Two ways to learn. You can learn from the mistakes of others or more difficultly, you learn by making the mistake yourself. And those of us who are really stubborn, we refuse to learn. That's what I appreciate about the psalmist. He says, you know what? I was afflicted. I went my own way. And in the end, it was good because I got the blood splatter and I'm not doing that again. God always works through the ups and downs of our lives. This is the message that the half-brother of Jesus gives to us in James chapter one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Totally counterintuitive. And unless you have more of, of an eternal or divine perspective on affliction in your life, you'll never get here. Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We've talked about this before. Cool Greek word here for various kinds. Poikilos is from which we, we get our English word polka dot. Polka dots are coming all different uh, uh, sizes, thank you, and colors, right? They're just different. Some are big, some are small. So you have all these kind of different trials that come into your life. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is another word for patience. And let patience have its full effect, but you have to let it so that you may be perfect and complete. Can anybody be perfect? By perfect, what they mean is mature, lacking in nothing. You know how this is. Some trials in life, they last an hour, a week, a month, but then there are those trials and afflictions that last for years and they just don't go away quickly. What do you do with those? As you get older in life, it just seems like you accumulate more and more and more. And James says, here's the deal. Read carefully. You have to be willing to submit to the process. Notice what he says. Let steadfastness or patience have its full effect. You gotta let it happen. Submit to the process. When you submit, there will be things produced in your life that weren't there before. And what happens is, because these things are there, you become a blessing to others. You're in a different place. You know things about God that you didn't know before. Because in effect, in your trust fall, you learn that God catches you. So this brings us to chapter 21. The text starts off on this amazing high note. 25 years in the making, God makes a promise 
to Abraham and Sarah saying, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to have a son. Two of you are going to have a son. It's going to be a total miracle. You're both way beyond childbearing years, but that's what's going to happen. So verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. We know that now this is Isaac, at the time of which God had spoken to him. So again, Sarah is 90 years old at this time. She's 90 years old and pregnant. Why? Because God wanted there to be no doubt I'm making this happen. This is going to be a miracle birth, a miracle baby. It's all my doing. Now, imagine being at this baby shower. <laughs> Sarah, here's a baby stroller for Isaac, and that walker is for you. <laughs> How about some diapers? Too far, okay. <laughs> but you get the picture. Everybody there, this, the, 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 the story is, can you believe what God did? And God's like, yeah, that's exactly why this is going down. That's the story. You see, 25 years in the making. My timing is not like your timing. Don't get caught up in your timing now because that's gonna turn you sideways. You're gonna take things into your own hands. We saw that happen. Just wait. Wait for me to fulfill it. I don't need your help. I, I'll do it. I'll do it. And it happens. And here's this baby boy, which is the empirical evidence for all to see that God keeps his word. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, well, let's read it. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not even a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's written law, not just every word will come to pass, but every single letter that makes up every single word. God can be trusted. So if someone was to ask me, just give me a simple definition of what it means to live the Christian life, here's what I would say. The Christian life is lived in faith, and faith is trust, trusting in what God says to be true. That's what it means to live the Christian life. So at this point in the story, uh, things look really, really good. There's a lot of celebration. God's promises come to pass. In fact, there's further reason to celebrate. Verse three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, and this is quite beautiful. It's actually in the form of poetry. It's like a song. She breaks out into a song. And this is where the language, the Hebrew language gets really, really cool. There's a play on words here. But here's what she sings. God has made laughter for me. If you remember, the name Isaac means what? Laughter. What does she say? She says, Let me come up with a little song. God has made Isaac for me. This is God's work. God gave me this gift of laughter, this gift of this boy, Isaac. Everyone who hears will Isaac over me. They will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So the name Isaac means laughter. The boy got the name originally a few chapters back, we learned, because Sarah overhears that she's going to give birth at this old age, and she laughs to herself. 
And she laughs because the thought is utterly ridiculous. Impossible, not gonna happen. And God says, you think that's funny? You don't think I can accomplish that? Well, guess what? I'm gonna get the last laugh. You're gonna name the boy Isaac and be reminded that nothing is impossible for me. Every time you call the boy's name, you're gonna be reminded that nothing is impossible with me. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast. There's this big party on the day that Isaac was, we was weaned, probably around two or three years old. And now in the next verse, the tone changes dramatically. Here's what happens. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar. Remember Hagar? She's the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham laughing. Sarah saw the son of Hagar laughing here's where the play on words continues in the text Sarah says God has given me laughter and then in the next couple verses Hagar's son is now the one laughing Ishmael he's 13 years older than Isaac and this word for laughter is actually an intensive form of of the name Isaac, and it is not a laughter of joy. It is a laughter of condescension. You know what's happening here? This is sibling rivalry. Sarah sees Ishmael laughing, and she's not happy. Verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. Doesn't call her by name calls her a slave woman. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham loves Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All my promises to you of a forthcoming nation, it's gonna happen through Isaac, but don't worry, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. I'm gonna bless Ishmael too because he's also your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This is a, kind of a sad situation. Um, first of all, what would cause a 16-year-old boy to make fun of his three-year-old little brother? Uh, I've told you before, my mom had four kids in less than six years, and then about 14 years later, guess what? <laughs> Can you say accident? It's okay, I'm here. I know what it's like to have older brothers. And when I was a little kid, man, they used to give me the worst beatdowns of my life. But then baby brother kept growing, and he kept growing. Now baby brother got to be 6'5". They're all around 6'1", those little guys. <laughs> the time when they stopped messing with me. And I always had the psychological game over them, no matter how young I was, but still. The sibling rivalry. In a few chapters, we're gonna see it taken to the extreme in the story of Joseph, but this is just good old-fashioned jealousy, and you can kind of understand it because for 13 years, Ishmael has been like, only child... And then all of a sudden, wait, what? Miracle baby? And he's 
jealous. And, and, and he's, in fact, Paul actually goes on in the New Testament and he says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Bad family dysfunction, man. Every family has some measure of it. And Sarah sees Ishmael laugh at her son and he says, she says, Abraham, get rid of them both. There's jealousy that, by the way, let me tell you something about jealousy. Here's what's especially insidious about jealousy that you may not realize. When you are jealous, you're being controlled. When you are jealous, what's happening is you are being emotionally enslaved to another person and you don't fully realize it. And what happens is in your jealousy, it causes you to do all kinds of things that undo you and those around you. And so now as a result of this jealousy, there's all kinds of friction. And so no one is immune from it. Without affliction, we would be superficial and shallow. If you ask someone who's mature in the faith, tell me, how did you get here? Chances are what they're gonna say to you is, let me tell you about this affliction. Let me tell you about this pain because what happened was, I was in a low place, and when I was in that low place, I had nowhere to look but up. I had a sweet lady approach me after the first service. She said, I've been suicidal. That's a low place. I said, let me tell you, you've stopped digging the hole, and that's the best place where you can be. Because when you stop digging and digging and digging, trying to get yourself out, digging that hole deeper and deeper, you give up and you're like, I can't do it. Exactly. She had nowhere to look but up. Within a 10, 15 minute conversation, her entire demeanor changed. What happens is even in our, our depression, in our isolation, we become full of ourselves. And we're so inwardly focused that we don't see God wanting to do his work in our lives. And so now there's this really sad scene. You know, it's like Abraham sends off this, this woman. And by the way, she's a single mom. And for those of you who are single parents, moms or dads, you have the toughest job in the world. If you are being raised by a single parent or have been raised by a single parent, give them some love, respect, grace, and mercy. That's one person doing the job of two. So here she goes. Abraham sends her out with very little, some water over her shoulder, her son, and she's out in the wilderness. And Hagar is about to experience her own affliction. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes because there's shade. Then she went and sat down opposite him, but a good way off. How far? Well, about the distance of a bow shot, which is roughly about 50 yards. That's the distance the arrow flies in order to make a kill. That's about the longest distance back in the day. Kill shot, about 50 yards away. She sits and she says, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and she's weeping. And then there's Ishmael because he's old enough to understand how desperate the situation is. He feels it and he's crying out. And God heard the voice of the boy. 
And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God hears human affliction. And in his own time, he responds. And very often, that time comes when we are at the end of our own ropes. We're at the end of that exhaustion. <laughs> digging, digging. Up. Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand because I'm gonna do something special for him. I'll make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. A super sad and desperate scene until God intervenes with this incredible promise. Not only have I noticed the boy, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bless him beyond your wildest imagination. He's gonna be a great nation. This is actually the fulfillment, watch this now, of what God had promised years earlier when Ishmael was born because he said, here's the deal with this kid Ishmael. He's gonna be a wild man. He's gonna be a wild man. His hand will be against everybody. And because of that, everybody's gonna have their hand against him. In other words, as he brings forth this nation, it's gonna be a warring people. They're not gonna get along with just everybody. You know what's interesting? You know who traces their roots back to Ishmael? The Arabs. In fact, in the Quran, Muhammad claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael. A lot of drama, a lot of strife. Where do you think all this, what we're experiencing in human history, it can all be traced to the Bible. So God is going to be with him. That's the most important part. Verse 20, God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. How ironic. He was within a bow shot of death and then he grows up and becomes an expert hunter. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, which is where his mother was from. You know, there's so many things to bring out from this text, but one of the things is this, and this is why I titled the sermon the way I did. God's grace often shows up in the most unexpected places, and those unexpected places are in the midst of your affliction. You say it again. God's graces show up in the midst of your affliction if you're looking for it. We all have them. Nobody gets through life unscathed. We all have them. What if God has a greater purpose for human suffering such that we come to understand that we can put our trust and faith in him, that he is trustworthy? So some of you might be card detail enthusiasts. Uh, you understand this principle. If you want the, the paint on your car to shine, right? if you want it to become brighter, it's actually the clear coat. If you want it to shine, you apply a polishing kit. But what is it about the polishing kit that actually makes it shine? Anybody know? Huh? It's friction. Your car's not gonna shine without the application of some. We have special machines that apply the right amount of friction. friction more friction than you can just generate with your hand. With the right amount of friction, that car sparkles. You can just see it happening. It's brighter and brighter. You sharpen a knife. How does a knife become sharp? What is it? It's friction. What happens is with friction, the little metal particles begin to rearrange themselves. 
and the edge of that knife becomes extremely sharp with the right amount of friction. Is God polishing you right now? Is God sharpening you? Let me rephrase that. What is the affliction? How can you shine? Where is the dullness? How can you be sharpened? It's one of those texts that I personally have been wrestling with all week, and now it's your turn. And now it's your turn. I know what it is for me. I've got those afflictions that have lasted longer than an hour, a week, a month. Years in the making now. I've practiced my own trust falls. The more I do, the more I realize God is trustworthy. Boy, I wish things would come to a quicker resolution. But maybe God has a higher purpose to produce something in my life. Not maybe. God does have a higher purpose to produce something in my life that would otherwise not be there. And you know what I found? It makes me a better pastor. The best biblical communicators, they get up here and they preach with a limp. You understand? They preach with a limp. What's your limp? Celebrate the fact that God is working in it. So isn't it crazy, the Apostle Paul, there's this moment, great honesty, he says, I have this thorn in the flesh, and I prayed three times for God to remove it. I'm like, you only prayed three times? I pray more like 3,000 times. Three times. And he says, God chose not to remove it. I actually think that thorn in flesh was some sort of spiritual attack. God didn't remove it for the purpose of keeping me humble. What kind of people bless you? Arrogant people? Proud people? Are those the people you want to be around? No, we can't stand them. We can't tolerate them. They're so full of themselves, they're not full of God. Nor do they have any room to be filled with anything that concerns you because they're so full of themselves. But humble people have been drained, <laughs> right? They've been drained of it all. And so when you, you empty of yourself, that's why Jesus says, you want to find your life? Lose it. Give it away. These are the people that end up being the greatest blessing to others. And they experience the joy of God on their lives because God is producing these things that allow them to be a blessing to others in other, way, in other ways that would not happen. And so this is how God uses affliction and pain. Our, most of our lives, it's pain avoidance, pain avoidance, but what if affliction comes in order to expand your sphere of influence? No greater proof than Jesus on the cross. In his absolute innocence, he suffers affliction and he would become the greatest blessing to all of humanity. So, let's do this. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. This principle, 
this truth is so important and so necessary for our times because it's all around us. And it can, be, it can become overwhelming. And sometimes we lose sight of the larger purposes of God and how he takes all of these threads that seem to be so undone and he pulls them together and he weaves something divine. Hagar and Ishmael are in a desperate situation. God intervenes and what happens? Blesses them and turns them into a great nation. That's what God does over and over. So Father, these are the moments in life that can go by us so quickly. We pray that we would just sit in it and that it would wash over us because there's not a person in this room that doesn't carry some kind of heartache. But God, you're in the midst of that. God, you understand heartache with what your own son went through. So Father, we pray that your spirit, as always, would speak so clearly. God, I'm super grateful for this community of believers and the depth of maturity that you are building here as we learn to trust fall into you. And we understand more and more how trustworthy you are. For those that are here, Father, perhaps our faith is very small. Will you encourage us even in just the smallest ways? We would be attentive to the scriptures, that we would avoid the affliction we bring on ourselves as a result of ignoring what you have to say. We would come to know you more. Your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy, all demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.